0: This is Around the Rim with LaChina Robinson.
1: Hello basketball fans and welcome to a brand new episode of your ESPNW Women's Basketball Podcast Around the Rim. I am your host LaChina Robinson joined as always by my fantastic and fabulous producer Tarika Foster Brasby. Happy Women's History Month. Yes, that's March. Women are amazing. We have a couple of podcasts that we have released over the past few weeks, centered around women. If you have not had a chance to listen, please go back. One was with the Women's Sports Foundation. Another was around a new series of uh, Around the Rim podcast that we've started called I'm Speaking. And that one features none other than Natasha Cloud of the Washington Mystic and Bozema St. John, the CEO of Netflix. But it's March Madness time, people. So that is the focal point of this particular podcast. We have Charlie Cream, our resident bracketologist for ESPN Women's Basketball that will join us and talk a little bit about how the brackets are shaping up. Tariqa, are you ready for March or not? Nah? Yes and no. Okay, what's happening? Yes, I am absolutely ready for March because I'm excited. It's March Madness. I'm actually happy that we're having a March Madness this year, that we're having a tournament this year. A year ago, we were all crushed, not knowing what in the world was going to happen. But no, because I'm hearing through the grapevine that Michigan State is on the bubble, not quite sure exactly where we're going to fall big 10 tournament is starting so I, I just need to know if I should be Spartan ready or not oh goodness here you go Spartan ready <laughs> listen if we know anything about Susie Merchant she is going to have the team ready I have no doubts about your Spartan but there are a lot of things I'm doubting including how this whole selection process is going to work and that's why we brought Charlie Cream onto the show he's going to clear things up for us in a COVID selection year ouch. Um, the NCAA has their work cut out for them, but I do want to say just a big thank you. Congratulations. A shout out to everyone that's involved in covering women's basketball um, this college season. The players, the coaches, the athletic staff, the administration, the NCAA, the committee members. I mean, everyone. This has been a very tough and trying year. There's been a pivot and then another pivot and another pivot. And then there's been programs on hold, and there's been positive COVID tests, unfortunately, and there's just been a lot of moving pieces that has um, been challenging for so many of us, and so we just want to send you love and tell you how much you're appreciated for pushing through this season into what we hope will be a magical NCAA tournament. Now, just to catch you all up really quickly before we get to Charlie on what's happening with the NCAA tournament this year. The entire tournament is in Texas. First and second round play will take place March 21st through the 24th at the Alamo Dome, the Bill uh, Grihey, I hope I'm saying that right, arena on the campus of St. Mary's, Frank Irwin Center at the University of Texas and the University Events Center at Texas State and the UTSA Convocation Center. Attendance will be limited to teams, players and guests. With each member of the 34 member official team travel party allowed up to six tickets for guests the sweet 16 through the women's final four will all take place at the alamo dome percent capacity will include all participants family members of each participating team student-athletes coaches essential staff and a reduced number of fans sweet 16 games will be played march 27th through the 28th elite eight games will be held march 29th through the 30th in the women's final four april 2nd and april 4th the next thing you need to know espn will be smothered and covered in the ncaa women's basketball tournament like never before okay in addition to our ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN cov- ESPNU coverage, for the first time since 1995, the championship was carried on CBS. Portions of this year's tournament will be carried by a broadcast network as ABC is scheduled to carry at least six tournament games. That is huge for women's college basketball. We've never had abc tournament games before so that's major shout out to carol stiff who's over programming for the uh, women's tournament for all of women's basketball um hall of fame member and a pioneer okay yes you know carol stiff so that will be huge and a lot of fun so you will be able to catch all of the games on the espn family and network And Tariq and I, of course, I'll be working. Tariq will be watching, hopefully texting me crazy things as we're watching great basketball. But that is the rundown on what's expected to happen. Now let's bring in our bracket expert, Charlie Cream, that will talk a little bit about the teams that may or may not make the cut. Okay, basketball fans. Um, As you know, March is the most magical time of the year for many of us who get to watch great college basketball performances, that get to see, you know, these bubble bursters, I guess you would call them um, on NCAA tournament selection night. Um, You know, we get to enjoy the best of our sport. And for some of us, March can be a little bit more of a stressful occasion depending on what your job description is. And I would just like to say for the record that I am in awe of the cool, calm, and collect individual that is joining us today um, because he does have a very, very difficult job. And that is one Charlie Cream, our resident bracketologist for ESPNW for Women's College Basketball. Charlie, welcome to the show. You don't have a hair out of place. You look fantastic. So <laughs> I assume you've already picked every team correctly and you know it and you're in good shape.
0: Oh, thanks. Lachana. Thanks for having me on. Um, no, that's not the case. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a, maybe a, a good looking exterior. Although a good looking is not something I would go too far in describing <laughs> it, but the in the interior is churning and, and it always does. And I, you know, p- people talk about selection Monday as being like Christmas for me. Well, it's maybe it's 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 Christmas for me if you're a parent who bought a bunch of presents for a very demanding child and you're just praying that the kid likes all the presents that's <laughs> what Christmas morning is is, oh. is like because you know I obviously I, I I like everybody likes to be right you like to think that you're doing the best job you can so I get very anxious before that bracket comes out um hoping that I got the right gifts
1: but you've been very successful. So you have that on your side. Um, And you have an incredibly hard job and we respect everything that you do. But in particular, in this year of COVID-19, which has completely rocked our world um, and has trickled down to what we see as the college basketball NCAA tournament selection process. Let's start with our audience with just a little bit of a Let's 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 go back a little bit um, okay. to the NCAA women's basketball committee making a decision to do away with the RPI, which used to be the tool that was used to determine um, well one of the determining factors for figuring out what teams got into the NCAA tournament. But now they're using the net. Can you just refresh us on what the net was intended to do and and be in this process?
0: I think the, the simplest way to, to look at it is the RPI was, was strictly results-based, but in, in strictly results-based wins and losses, it didn't take into account any sort of margin of victory. It was who did you beat, who did, who did those teams play and beat, and who did those teams then play and beat? And it was just a mathematical formula. There was not a lot of nuance to it. The net is, is, is built around, around that, but it also takes the how – into consideration a lot more with there's an offensive efficiency quotient to it. There's a defensive efficiency quotient to it. So it gives teams that maybe aren't necessarily winning a ton of games or, or, but if they're losing close games and, but they're offensively efficient um, they're, they're a real good defensive team, but maybe you know, they lose a lot of 52 to 50 type games, things like that. It, it gives it, it it provides an element of the how I think instead of just the what to the whole process. Um, But, but it does it in a, in a mathematical quantitative way. That's how the offensive and defensive efficiency things are incorporated. It's a, it's still a math formula and, you know, it doesn't exclude the idea of watching games. It doesn't exclude the idea of, of of having a feel for what a team is. Um, And it doesn't exclude the, other 13 criteria that the committee uses to, to measure teams. But I will say a couple of those criteria are built off of the, whatever the metric is being used. So it used to be the RPI. Now it's the net. So now we talk about top 25 net wins, top 50 net wins as a way to define a quality win. So that part is the same, but I think it's, as I said, it's really more of the, the, it gives the cheat teams who maybe don't have that robust record or, or who play a real, real tough schedule what the RPI measure too, but played a real tough schedule and played it well. Um, so it, it takes some of the other criteria like competitive and losses and almost already incorporates it into the measurement too. So then when you start talking about quality wins um, it's maybe a more accurate depiction of what those are. It's, it's not a perfect, metric. I don't think anybody sits there and, and says, oh, this makes total sense to me. The net is the greatest thing ever, but the net is a lot better than the RPI because of those things I just said. We're, we're getting there. It's a better metric. The, the men who've been using it for three years s- seem to have a better selection process as a result. I think the, the, the women's side will too. The Maybe the, the, the COVID part is going to not give us a true idea of of how the committee is is really using the net because this is, this is such a unique year. It's going to stand alone in, in everything that we do following the sport. So I'm not sure that this is going to give us the true definition going forward, but I will say that based on the reveals that the committee has given us that the net is essentially being used the same way the RPI is used is um, an organizing tool, as a, as a way to measure, you know, wins and losses and what those wins and losses mean. And, but it's not the end all be all. And I think there's, there's been some examples of, of that already where we've seen where the, com- the committee certainly is not married to that net number. It, it's a guide. It's a starting point, And it's something that's, that's, that's taken into consideration. Sure. It's one of the criteria, but it's not everything.
1: So along those lines to give the fans a little bit of an idea is what you're saying that Baylor, the number one defensive team in the country by field goal percentage defense would have a better net rating um, than a team who had a very similar profile but was not as good defensively. Is that what you're saying? Because that would be a consideration.
0: Perhaps. I mean, there's other parts to the right. math section right. of it, certainly. And Baylor has a, uh, also would have a pretty good offensive efficiency rating to go with right. the defensive. But yes, um, I mean, it's maybe it's oversimplifying, but, it, but essentially, yes, that's, that's the case. And, and it's why Baylor has been essentially a top four to five team in the net for quite a while now. Um, another good example, I think, is Oregon? I think all of us watching Oregon now would not, in a, in a million years, say that's a top ten team. But they're still tenth in the net, and I think it has a lot to do. And I haven't really pulled back the curtain and really started to, to crunch all of those numbers to figure out the net. That's kind of like an off season activity, I think. But but Oregon is a is ten in the net. And they were very offensively efficient the beginning of the season. Their offense was superb at the beginning of the season. Can't say that now, but I think the number probably still reflects some of that, mm-hmm. but they're, as they're, they're 10 in the net, but none of us would agree that they're the 10th best team in the country. Right. And they're not gonna, going to be seated on the three line because of that number. It's going right. to be, it's going to be lower than that, but that's, but those are some examples. Baylor's a good example. Oregon, I think is another example of, of kind of how the number is maybe a little bit different than it might've been last year or the year before.
1: So you mentioned the other criteria um, in addition to the net that the NCAA selection committee is using. Um, I am big on the eye test. I talk about it all the time because to me, especially in – honestly, I think any year. You know a good team when you see one. Win, lose, or draw. Depends on how much basketball you know. I'm sure you would agree with that. Sure. But, um, you know, there are just certain – boxes that can be checked when it comes to the eye test of a team that's an NCAA tournament team or should be a higher seed. So when you look at the criteria this year in a COVID season that the committee is using, in addition to the eye test, in addition to to the net, just remind some of our, or inform some of our listeners as to what those other items may be.
0: I can, I can read them off for you actually. Um, but, th- and this is, this is the list that they use. These are the things that they that they go by. So in alphabetical order, <laughs> availability of talent, bad losses, common opponents. So the common opponents would be if they're comparing a group of teams, if there's any commonality who they played. Competitive in losses. I mentioned that one. Conference record, early competition versus late competition. So it, that used to be called the last 10. Essentially, that's how you play it now versus how you played earlier because the tournament is now. So playing well later tends to carry a little bit more weight, but not 100% of the weight, head-to-head if, if, the, if the situation should arise. The net, non-conference record, doesn't have as big of an impact this year, obviously. Overall record, regional rankings, strength of schedule, significant wins, and strength of conference. Um, so those are, the, those are the, the criteria that the committee goes through, discusses, And I know a lot of people want to know, well, what, what means more than this? And, and the answer is there isn't a, there isn't a, a, that's alphabetical order. It's not, that was certainly not order of importance because there really isn't an order of importance. Remember there are 10 people on the committee and all of them kind of, well, they all watch a lot of basketball and they all kind of have their ideas about these criteria. And then, and that's where the discussion takes place. That's why it's a committee that, and they have they have these conversations and one committee might, member might bring up a couple of things about a certain team based on those criteria that they think makes that team either worthy or not worthy of the tournament. And another member talking about the same team might look at that team a little differently based on another set or grouping of the, of the criteria. And that's where they have the, that's where they have to have conversation, debate, whatever you want to call it. And then as a group, they have these, a series of votes, but it's, the conversation is all based on these, these criteria, but each person could have a different outlook on the criteria. So they, to, I know people always, like I said, wanna know, well, what's the most important thing? And there really is not an answer to that.
1: When I listen to you go down that list and I think about this COVID season, and you and I talked a little bit before we came on, in, in all fairness, but I have had serious issue. Um, and this is just in general with the whole scheduling aspect of things, because this is a season where coaches did not have control over their non-conference. They did not have control over their conference schedule. They were very unbalanced conference schedules, not just by design, like, you know, some conferences had to make decisions based on COVID, whether you would play one team twice at home or, you know, um, you know, regional trying to keep, teams close to one another. Like there were all kinds of decisions that had to be made, but then when there were shutdown periods that also changed the schedule. So some teams maybe didn't have enough, didn't have a a large volume of opportunity that maybe they would have to beat a high net ranked team or to get more quality wins. If not for COVID, we just talked about a situation where a coach um, was unavailable, which to me should follow under fall under the category of, talent availability but you know head coach is out due to COVID let's just say that um so where will the the uniqueness of this particular season play out on Selection Monday?
0: Well that is a great question um it is the question and um I'd like to be able to say I know for sure but I don't and honestly here we are five days away from selection Monday, the committee will gather uh, this weekend. And I'm gonna guess that there's at least a few members of that committee that like myself that are really still struggling with the answer to that question because it's so widespread. It it has had different, the impact it's had on programs has been different in description, but how do you measure the severity? Um, how much has it impacted the results? Because ultimately, that's what the committee is looking at is results. And they look at, obviously, we ran down the, the criteria. They're looking at, some to some degree, how or what happened to derive some of those results. Availability, availability of talent, availability of coaches is certainly one of those things. But how far down the rabbit hole can you go with each and every single program to measure something So subjective, you know, one coach might feel that that her being out or him being out for two or three games, whatever it might might have been is far more impactful than another coach saying that, well, we had two starters out for these two games or we had all our players, but we only got all our players the morning of the game and we didn't get a chance to practice for a week prior to that game um you know so everybody's going to make their pitch that their situation was very dire very severe and that's why they lost this game that maybe they ordinarily wouldn't have felt like they should have lost and so i struggle with that when i put my head on the pillow at night for far fewer hours right now than than normal um that's that's what i'm thinking about to be honest and that's what i'm thinking about when i wake up is how do how do i put all of those things into the the, the metaphorical formula to, to get 64 teams, to get them seated in the right places. And I would assume the committee is going through that too. My instinct, based on what we've seen so far with two top 16 reveals, is that they're going to try to keep as far away from the subjectivity of that issue as they can. And they're just going to look at the games what's played, what's in front of their eyes, what's you know on the on the team sheets when they sit down and start pouring over all of the information on these teams. Um, with certain considerations, you know, in place. Um, but to the level they're not I don't basically want to say is and this is a very long-winded answer to your question, but I think it warrants sort of a, a bob and a weave sort of because I think it is that it's it's that big, but it's also that hard to really get to a definitive answer, um, but I think you know that will come up in conversation. You know, let's we're t- let's talk about Team X. Well, Team X's coach is out. Coach was out for two games. Uh, let's talk about Team Y. Well, they had a three-week pause. Um, and, and let's talk. You know, so all of those things are going to come up. But I think it, I think probably at the end of the day, the the f- the easiest thing, the fair nah, easy is not even a good word. Perhaps the fairest thing. Cause you could have conversations about the circumstances of every team for weeks and not really get to who had the worst of it or who had the best of it is to, is to look at what was played, how the games played out, what the games then reflect as, as it pertains to the criteria and go from there. So I feel like I didn't really answer your question, LaChyna, oh, but I, I'm working through this stuff, too. And that was sort of my monologue of working through it.
1: <laughs> well, and Charlie, by all means, and we all know I, I you know, have my gripes with the NCAA Women's Basketball Committee, I have in the past that um, if you're still toiling all over this, I'm sure they are as well. Um, I don't think there are any answers that are out there that um, you're missing or that I'm missing. Um, So, okay, let's look at what we know so far and then talk a little bit about how things may shift with what we have left with conference tournaments before we let you go. So it'll be a 31 uh, birth, Season, So we will only have 31 automatic qualifiers. Correct me if, if I'm wrong, because the Ivy League um, has okay. opted out of the season. So, so far, here are the teams that have punched their ticket. Um, Ohio Valley Conference, the Belmont Bruins, ACC, the NC State Wolf Pack, Mercer Bears out of the Southern Conference, SEC, South Carolina, Stanford out of the Pac-12, Troy out of the Sun Belt, uh, out of the Big East, UConn. Horizon, Wright State Raiders, South Dakota uh, Coyotes, out of the summit. Uh, Is it coyotes? Coyotes? (laughs) Sorry.
0: (laughs) Probably depends on where you live.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know. I was going to say. West Coast, uh, Gonzaga in a... Wow! Incredible win, one point victory over an amazing
0: BYU. game. To, to yeah, be honest, I was gonna an say, game. <laughs>
1: and and we got your twelve thirty a.m. email. I mean, that's how hard Charlie is working, ladies and gentlemen, where he's updating us on what's happening on the bubble. He always sends us the last four teams in, the last four out, any movement that could potentially happen. I mean, the man is working. So what you sent us last night was there were no changes. BYU fell two spots from the field, so. They went from being, let's see here, a little further up on that first four out to their last of the first four out, basically. UCF needs a win to stay in the field. Um, One would go a long way um, to getting, but does not secure an at-large berth. And UCF lost, put Notre Dame in the field. Um, And it looks like Houston may need to win AAC, automatic qualifier to get a spot, even though they've had a great season. And then last but not least, and this is all AAC related, USF would fall to a seven seed with a loss to to Tulane. So let's talk about this bubble. Last four in as of now, DePaul, Wake Forest, Mississippi State, UCF, in that order. First four out, Notre Dame, Ole Miss, and Houston. So what could happen over these next, you know, between now and when the conference tournaments are done, that could change this bubble, if at all?
0: Um, Probably limited shifting, but you you mentioned a little bit, UCF losing in the semifinals to Houston. Um, You know, I wrestled with this doing it last night is – does Houston five Notre Dame and, and get in as, as an at large based on that, based on a win over UCF? Um, and ultimately, my answer was no, that I still think Notre Dame's resume is better than Houston's. They've had, I think they've had a, Notre Dame's had a t- kind of very up and down, tough season, but I think still quality wins and, and who they're playing, I think st- warrants them being in over Houston in that case. Um, so, and, and really the difference between Notre Dame and UCF, I'm wrestling, I wrestle with that all the time as well, but so that would be a change potentially uh, Notre Dame moving in if UCF were to not win this game, they kind of need to get to the finals. I think to, to keep an at-large berth. And I do think now Houston probably does have to get the automatic qualifier based on that. So that's one thing that could shift. Now, a couple other things coming up. Um, a lot of these bubble teams were breathing a sigh of relief after. Jill Townsend for Gonzaga hit that shot at the buzzer to beat BYU. Cause that would have put BYU in the field as an automatic qualifier. Gonzaga certainly was, is making the field. So that would have taken an extra spot away from a bubble team. Um, South Dakota winning the summit also was a whoo for uh, any of the, those bubble teams because South Dakota probably was going to get in the field. They weren't as secure as Gonzaga, certainly, but they were, they were going to get into the field. in my opinion and that would have left the spot taken taken up because South Dakota State from the summit is also going to uh, get into the tournament. Um, and we maybe talk about them in a little bit. South Dakota is an interesting conversation because of some injuries and, you know, kind of we're talking about the COVID thing. But um, Missouri State and the Missouri Valley, that's kind of the other big thing coming up. If they happen to lose, they're, they're the only team that's going to make. The field from the Missouri Valley. Should they win the conference tournament, but if they lose, obviously then there's two spots taken up there, and and that's going to be another bubble team going by the wayside. So so that's a league where where bubble teams need to be paying attention to. And Atlantic Sun is another one. Florida Gulf Coast, I think, it's a tournament team regardless of their out their outcome in the Atlantic Sun tournament. But another, and certainly no other no other team in the Atlantic Sun is under at large consideration. So that would add an extra team to the Atlantic sun and take away a team that's currently on the bubble. So that's, those are the things that could really change Um, the, the big 10 tournament. That's the big 10 and big 12 tournaments are the, are the power five tournaments we still have left. Not probably a lot's going to happen with them. Uh, Michigan state is just above the bubble or just above last four in. So a a loss by Michigan state Uh, they've already got one win in the big, Big 10 tournament, but that doesn't really help them beating Wisconsin, but a, a loss coming up here could put them in, into a, a bubble situation. Um, and, and really not much in the big 12, they, Oklahoma, I guess I shouldn't say, Oklahoma is a team that if they make a run and all, and none of those other things happen, then Oklahoma, say they make a run to the semis finals, probably more, more likely would be needed. Oklahoma could, could possibly get in the field under those circumstances. And I think that pretty much covers where, where we're at with the bubble and kind of the movement. Since so many tournaments are already finished, there's, there's limited teams. A lot of the teams on the bubble are already done playing. So there's not much they can do to help their cause. They can o- only hope someone else doesn't hurt their cause.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad we talked about conference tournaments because at some point you know, they were just talking about not having them. You know, there were coaches that are saying, oh, why are we even going to have them? Most of those were coaches that knew they were already in the NCAA tournament. But I'm I like- I kind of
0: said that, too, to be honest. So I, yeah. I I take the position of some of those coaches. I'm kind of glad we did, ultimately. Yeah. But I did I did have that opinion at one point. Um, I still am not sure that it, it wouldn't have been a better idea to just play more regular season games and make up some of the ones that were lost. So everybody could have gotten more games instead of just a select few teams that, that advanced in the tournaments. But let's face it, they are even if there's no fans and you're watching on TV, they're still fun.
1: (laughs) They're very fun. And, you know, the student athlete experience, which is God, I don't even want to get into that has not been quite an experience, but just to be able to say you won a conference tournament, I think means something to the, the student athletes who have sacrificed so much this season, but then also Charlie, you know, even though it hardly ever happens for the number eight seed in this crazy year, to make a run to the championship and upset, you know, the number one seed and get the AQ when they weren't in the picture to begin with. I know it never really happens, but do you really want to rob those teams of that opportunity of their Cinderella moment?
0: It's right? it's rare, but you're right. And it's we, rare. And we had a, in the summit league, we had the potential for that to happen because Omaha was the eight seed in the right. in the summit tournament, right. Beat the number one seed South Dakota state advanced to the finals and had their opportunity to do that. They didn't, but the opportunity would not have been presented to them had we not had a conference tournament. So to your point, yes, that, that from, the, from a student athlete perspective, they would have been robbed of that opportunity. And, and that's certainly something that should be, and I'm sure was considered when a lot of these discussions about having tournaments, was was discussed
1: 100 okay we got you on three and out charlie so three quick questions and you are out of here you're off the hot seat
0: can i can i, can I go quickly do you really yeah. think that's possible
1: yes you can go quickly <laughs> i think you can do it charlie i believe you can do it um but this try. is this is a lot of great information so i want to give fans an idea of how you do seating now we've talked a little bit about um you know who's getting into the tournament but I'll use two teams, for example, and you tell me kind of how you got to where you are with them, all right? So looking at where you have the ACC and the SEC situated right now, right? So just so everyone knows, as far as conferences are concerned, right now, Charlie has eight out of the SEC, eight teams making the NCAA tournament, eight out of the ACC, seven Big Ten, six Pac-12, five Big 12, three Big East, two Summit, two American, Okay. Um, I'll get to your top 16 in a moment because I want to talk about the committee's top 16 versus yours. But when I look at the ACC and SEC, Georgia Tech is a six seed. Alabama is also a six seed. When you look at the two leagues, where those teams finished in their conference, you know, their, their, their wins versus, you know, top net teams, um, you know, all of the things we mentioned, all the criteria. To me, Georgia Tech and Alabama cannot be the same seed. I just do not see those two teams being equal based on the season that, I think. and no disrespect to Alabama, I just think Georgia Tech had a much better season. Make a case for these two teams both being six seed right now as you see it.
0: Well, keep in mind that being on the same seed line could mean, on the the overall one through 64 list, it could mean that you're, number 20 or number 21 or your number 24
1: 24 right
0: so you're right. separate so there's a there is a separation there and in certain seed lines have different separations among the teams it's i mean it's it's a 1 through 64 sort of a power list if you will and so it doesn't necessarily it just it, it sometimes it just happens to be where you fall so in this instance Georgia Tech is the best number 6 seed on my list Alabama is the worst number six team on the list. And I do believe there's even among those four teams, there is a gap um, or a gap, maybe bigger than the gap between Alabama and the team who's seven seated right behind them, um, which I think is USF right now. Um, so that gap might be tiny, the gap between Georgia Tech and Alabama might be this much. I, people who are listening cannot see that I'm holding <laughs> up my fingers. Right. He's so gotta, I'm, he's very, I'm a very uh, up here. visual guy. I've an <laughs> Italian background. I talk with my hands a lot. So just to picture me talking with my hands and separating my fingers by a lot more than I just did when I talked about Georgia Tech. So in, in other words, the not all, not all the same seeds are cre- created equally, even though the number says that they are so that's an important thing to keep in mind it's it's never going to be something that i think i'll be able to fully explain to people because and because this is how we've sort of all been ing, ingrained into how we view the tournament and how we view seeding it's just that okay all the six seeds are the same all the one seeds are the same and and it's it's not necessarily the case there are there are levels and there are levels within seeds so in this case, I would agree with you. Georgia Tech has had a better season than Alabama, and there's a decent enough gap there. It's just kind of where they fell numbers wise overall that puts them on that particular seed line. And in this case, the same seed line.
1: Well, thank you for explaining that. Um, I will say I think one of the other six seeds is Oregon. And I think Georgia Tech is way better than them, too. OK, not way, but they're up. uh, uh probably a seed line better than that, but that's okay i get what okay. you're saying
0: but, but that's but that's a good example of something else we should probably talk about in that while i I would also tend to agree with you what what i do with bracketology is i'm trying to i'm trying to mimic what i think the committee will do so in in most seasons we well now that we have these top 16 reveals that's that's a little clue a little insight to how the committees thinks about certain teams or how they view certain of the criteria, or things like that. So I would then make adjustments to maybe how my personal feelings and how I would rank the teams based on what the committee does. Um, and in this case, Oregon is a team that I had very much out of the last top 16 reveal. The committee had them in at 14. So Because my job is defined by, I guess, me. I guess no one's really told me this is how the job has to work. But, but the idea of bracketology is to try to give a snapshot of what we think the committee will do at at any point in time during the season and just after the season. And since the committee's kind of told us what they're thinking about Oregon in particular, I had to readjust my one through sixty-four ranking system in their in their spot. So, so they had to go from I think I had them maybe like. 19 or 20 overall a few weeks ago to when the committee did this last reveal where the committee put them 14th. I had to bump them up to 14 and then, then they moved down subsequent to those losses, but how much did they move down? I know the committee's already valued what Oregon did earlier in the season greater than I would have valued it. So that's sort of why maybe you see Oregon and Georgia tech on the same seed line in my brackets, because I'm, I'm trying to I'm, I'm trying to get inside the heads of 10 people whom I don't know. It's impossible, right? But if they give some clues, I have to – I can't ignore those clues. I can't just say, this is what Charlie would do and forget the rest because it, the bracket would look different if, if it was just, you know, Charlie's czar of brackets for the day or for the season. But I have to try to follow the, the – as I've told a lot of people, read the tea leaves and go from there.
1: Well – I would like it better if we had Charlie's bracket. And at the end of the day, you know, we could all say, you know, I don't really agree with what the committee had, but Charlie's bracket actually looks a little closer to what I was expecting. You know what I mean? Just a thought. But I Every understand- year
0: I find myself doing two things that are polar opposite of each other, criticizing the committee after the final bracket comes out and defending the committee as to the process and the things that they're looking at. And it, and it sounds like I am, you know, like I, I know I'm swinging on a pendulum sometimes, <laughs> but you know, but I believe in the process. I love the process and the and the idea of brackets. And obviously, you you would do this if you had, didn't have some sort of obsession. But at the same time, um, I want to see. I would like to see certain things too, like everybody else that covers the game, like yourself. And uh, and and sometimes the what what the committee ends up doing and what I do. Um, would not be the same thing. And and that's where I get to, and then that's where I get to unleash my criticisms.
1: Well, the committee has a very hard job. I've done a mock selection. I'm sure you have as well at the NCAA. I have the utmost respect for Nina King, who is now the chair of the women's basketball selection committee. Um, So me griping is kind of like, what I do as an analyst. It's like you wait for the play to happen and then you say what should have happened. You're not that actual person calling the play, but you're the person that's (laughs) gonna tell you what you should have done after it didn't work. So that's my job. All right, so in in talking about the top 16, and you already kind of really answered this question, Charlie, but they actually had Oregon 15th um, in their top 16, but they had UConn, Stanford, Texas A&M, South Carolina. And this is in order because we do have a a true S curve this year. UConn, Stanford, Texas A&M, South Carolina, NC State, Maryland, Arizona, Baylor, Louisville, UCLA, Georgia, Indiana, Tennessee, Kentucky, Oregon, Arkansas. Now, this is our last reveal. It's our last kind of peek behind the curtain as to what the selection committee may be thinking. Um, upon the, the, this final reveal, was there anything egregious or just unexpected in your opinion?
0: Well, I didn't, I didn't, or we already touched on it. I didn't think Oregon should have been in there. Um, otherwise, no, I, I didn't think there was anything terribly egregious. It's, it's, and it's, it's shifted. Well, ironically, the day we got that final 16, or I'm sure not that the final 16, the 16 from that reveal that very day, four of those teams lost. <laughs> so by the time we were talking about and getting the reveal, Three of them had lost. And then later, Oregon lost to Oregon State. So it was already somewhat irrelevant. I mean, not, not completely, obviously. A lot of teams didn't lose. But there, there, were, there were losses that took place. And things have shifted since then. Not a ton. Some teams I had that were in there, moved out, then moved back in. Kentucky being one. I, they lost that day. I, I, I pulled them out of the 16 right after that. But then, then they then they uh, beat Georgia, and I move back, move them back in. Um, so there's been some shuffling, and then, but and that's why bracketology, I think, you know, matters to people. I hope I hope it matters to everybody. But I think the, the maybe the primary reason it matters to the, those who really dive into the game and to the sport is that um, it's 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 a here and now type thing, and that top 16 gave us a here and now that by, by the time all was said and done, the now was, was no longer, <laughs> or that now was not, it was not the real now. Um, so that's why this, that's why bracketology I think works. Cause it, then it gives the next, you know, the very, the very up-to-date information as best we can. We do it every day. Once the season gets close to being done, obviously during the year, we just do it once a week. Um, so maybe it's, it's not exactly what I just described, but, but it, it also gives an idea of how much influx this stuff can be when you, when you do a 16 that the committee did and then four teams lose.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, it's kind of been that kind of year, right, Charlie? Um, you know, even as an AP voter or, you know, con- con- uh, content creators that we are in this sport, it's like, you know, you have everything all done up and very pretty. And then, you know, the number one team loses. Oh yeah. And the number two team lost too. And, <laughs> you know, everything just starts moving around. Okay. Final thing for you. So we do, we know a little bit about what's to expect in Texas, right? Um, there's four regions, Alamo, Riverwalk, Mercado, Hemisfa- Hemisphere. Those are the four regions, even though they are all in Texas. Um, there will be some fans, I believe, correct? Um, yeah. A
0: percentage. A,
1: yeah, Percentage of fans will be there. Um, What are your thoughts about what the NCAA has planned for this event? Like we know we're going to Texas. We also know that Texas, you know, took down their mask mandate very recently. Um, So with the season we've had around COVID and just in general, with us having a true S curve, what are your thoughts as we march towards uh, the site of this year's ultimate final four and national champion?
0: Well, I guess I have some hopes. I hope it works. I think the NCAA has done a great job at putting together the best. This whole season has been, let's do the best we can, right? Just to get a season and give, give these players a chance to actually play. And I think the NCAA and the conferences for the most part have done a great job at that um, with all of the things they have to take into consideration. And I, and I hope that continues in this, the NCAA tournament setting that we have I, I got my fingers crossed that nothing happens where a team has to bow out of the tournament once it's started. That would certainly not be ideal for anyone. It would be a real negative for the tournament. Uh, it would take a lot of air out of it, I think. So I'm, I'm just praying that that doesn't happen. Um, but I'm I, I'm looking for maybe a more competitive tournament. I think it's a little more wide open at the top than we've seen in most years. You know, people usually ask me, you know, random people that I run into that aren't necessarily they're very, very peripheral women's basketball fans. And they, they're always out, who's going to win this year. You know, how many teams actually have a chance to win in women's basketball? Well, it's, it's, it's really nice to be able to to say in recent years, that that number has grown. And this year it's grown, I think, to a number more than I can remember. Um, I think maybe seven or possibly eight teams could actually win a national championship this year. I, and I, and I think some years we're looking at two, in the past, I think that's a great, a great testament to the growth of the game and how how much greater recruiting is around the country and how more widespread it is internationally and things like that. So th- that's one of the things I'm looking for is that I don't, I don't really know if there's a, a lock-in favorite. I think there's a group of teams that would be considered favorites. And, and, and so that's good. And that's exciting. I also think that teams that handle this, the environment, it's a different, it's a totally different environment. It's even a different environment than they've had during the season. And it's a, certainly a different environment than any of them have ever had in, in any NCAA tournament setting. The ones that are able to manage that the best, you know, essentially they're going to have to be three weeks. If they make it to the final four, they're going to have to be, you know, in bubble wrap <laughs> practically. Or, you know, it's basketball, it's meals, and it's your hotel room in order to stay safe not get a positive test. And given what you mentioned at the top of this question with the mask mandate being lifted in Texas, it's not like you you, you can have your kids wander in the streets of San Antonio going to get a, you know, a, a diet Coke at the seven 11. They got, they have to stay in the rooms. And, and so that's, so I'm wondering how, which team maybe handle It may not be the absolute best team. It may be the team that manages that circumstance the best. And So, which adds another whole subjective element to picking a winner. So, those are the things I'm I'm curious about, and I think I think I speak for everybody that loves women's basketball, loves basketball in general, loves sports. We have a tournament, and last year was devastating that we didn't. So, thank goodness we have a tournament, and that's that's the thing I'm most happy about.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's scary. It's also exciting. You don't know what to expect. What could happen? I agree with you. It's anyone's ball game, and um, you know I, I tend to think and I've thought all season that the deeper teams or the most more experienced teams, those who returned um, you know more of their percentage of scoring or rebounding or whatever from last season were in better shape because practices were going to be shut down and games were going to be shortened like those are the teams that I felt like coming into this year would have the most success obviously health overall health with injuries and all that stuff also plays in but it could honestly be about, your ability to follow the tight protocols and to, um, you know, adhere to some of the advisory of, of our health experts as we head towards Texas. Are you in your room by yourself? Or are you in your room with your teammate? I mean, that could be the difference between a, a national championship and not. And that's a really scary thought for teams yeah. that have worked incredibly hard all season long to get to this point. And so have you, Charlie, We appreciate your time, guys. (laughs) On Selection Monday, you print out your bracket to fill in. You print out um, Charlie's bracket. And then, you know, you watch the Selection Monday show and see how it all plays out. Right. (laughs) Um, The Selection show will happen on ESPN. That's March 15th, Monday, March 15th on ESPN. 7 p.m. Eastern time. Charlie, we appreciate all of your hard work. You're amazing. You don't have an easy job. You continue to to deliver, and we thank you for that.
0: Thanks, Luciana. It's always great to be on. Love it.
1: All right, basketball fans. Well, we hope you enjoyed our time with Charlie Cream. You can always send us your thoughts, your notes, your messages. On Twitter, we are at Around the Rim Pod. I am at LaChina Robinson. Tarika is at Shino Sports underscore. You can email us at around the rim podcast at gmail.com. Um, and we want you to follow us or subscribe or whatever you do on your podcast app Spotify, Apple, ESPN, wherever you get your podcast. Please subscribe and support Around the Rim. We want to thank you guys. I read some really nice comments recently from people who had listened to the podcast. We do read your comments. We do love to interact with our fans. So thank you for your notes. Continue to write us, Uh, whether you're here in the U.S. or you're across the water. We appreciate all of our women's basketball fans, and we thank you for following our podcast and supporting the game. Until next time.